warning. Some things in our podcast may not be suitable for everyone. We talk about cults and murders, and due to the nature of our podcast, may use harsh language at times. Viewer's discretion is advised. And also, we can't pronounce anything. Hi guys, and welcome back to Cults and Crime. I hope you guys really enjoyed our special bonus episode last week. And now we're coming out with another episode, a new crime episode for you. Nicole? Yep. This week, we're going to be talking about the Fort Bragg murders, Jamie. And on February 17th, 1970, a 911 call would come in that would rock Fayetteville and the Fort Bragg area. I am so excited to hear about it. Let's get into it. Let's just go. I'm, I'm ready. When the 911 call came out, he said his name was Captain McDonald. There had been a stabbing, and he needed a doctor, military police, and an ambulance to come to his house at 544 Castle Drive in Fort Bragg. The McDonald's family lived in the Cordell Courts. Uh, I guess it's a housing area for officers and non-commissioned officers. And the residence was one of four in an older brick building. So was it an official base housing or just a lot of officers lived there? So this is official base housing. This is actually on the Fort... This is actually in Fort Bragg, the military base. Okay. A news reporter named Jeff Thompson of Upcoming Weekly, who was one of the first reporters to arrive after paramedics and police, had described the day as nasty, rainy, and cold. I can't imagine. You know, like, how do these reporters get this scoop? Like, do you have, like, a police scanner? Like, what are you doing here to get there before, like, so quickly? Yeah, and all this is in 1970, so you'd have to wonder, right? Yeah, like, that guy must have been just sitting in his car waiting for something to happen. All had seemed quiet when police arrived, the front door was locked, and the military police were hesitant at first to break in. One eventually found a back door to a utility room that was open, and he went inside and found complete and utter carnage. The utility room led to the master bedroom, where Colette McDonald's, who was four months pregnant, lay on her back on the floor. Blood had soaked her pajamas and the carpet beneath her head, from nearly a dozen stab wounds to her neck, chest, and blows from a blunt object that had fractured her skull. That sounds really excessive. Jeffrey McDonald had laid face down with his head on Colette's shoulder. He was wearing only his pajama bottoms. His pajama top was laid across Colette's body. McDonald had a single stab wound and a partially deflated lung. Smeared across the couple's headboard, was the single word pig in blood. This is all really weird. By the way, Jimmy, he was still awake, and he had instructed the police to check on his children. Down the hall from the master bedroom, five-year-old Kimberly and two-year-old Kristen were in their beds. Kimberly had been beaten in the head and stabbed, and Kristen was also stabbed to death. The crime scene showed minor signs of a struggle, the coffee table on its side, on top of a stack of magazines. A flower pot was nearby with a plant laying on the floor next to it. There was a pair of eyeglasses on the floor by the wall with a single speck of blood on them. Since McDonald's was partially conscious when the police found him, according to court records in the house and later in interviews, he gave his description of what had happened. See, McDonald had been asleep on the living room couch and woke to sounds of screaming. At first, he thought it was Colette and possibly Kimberly. He wasn't quite sure. But when he had fully woken, he saw two white men, a black man, and a white woman in the living room with him. 
He said the black men wore an army jacket with a sergeant stripe on the shoulder, and a woman had blonde hair, a floppy hat, and brown boots. The woman appeared to be holding a candle. McDonald's recounted that the woman was saying, kill the pigs, acid's groovy, and acid is groovy, kill the pigs. Wait, what? <laughs> That's just not the phrases you would think to hear from someone who was actively committing murder. Yeah, it's just, it's odd. McDonald said that he had tried to fight the intruders, one hit in the head with a blunt force object that he said he later grabbed. He said he was stabbed with an ice pick, and he kept fighting until he fell unconscious. McDonald's had awoken on the hardwood floor, and had searched the house and found the bodies. He said he pulled a knife from Colette's chest. And uh, investigators did find a knife in the bedroom. They also found a bloodstained club, an ice pick, and then another knife in the backyard. This is all really weird. Okay, so for those of you guys who don't know, I'm a military spouse. I've been married to my husband for quite a few years now. And the way he's describing this is just really odd. First off, to get onto a military installation, you have to have a military ID or have someone who has a military ID sign you onto the base. Depending on how like secure they are at that moment, there's different types of security. But for the most part, but you always need someone in the group to have a military ID. He said the guy had a shirt with two stripes on it? Um, yeah, Jamie, he said he had, the black gentleman had an army jacket on with sergeant stripes. Sergeant stripes, okay. So, I guess if that guy was a sergeant, he would have been able to get on base with them, and depending on the security level at the time, maybe he could have gotten on with just their driver's licenses. But then the person at the gate would have had to look at him and look at all those driver's licenses. They would have been able to identify those people that broke into the house. So that doesn't really make sense either. Like, also, if people are on drugs, the base is just not the place you want to be. Like, I know a lot of people that will, you know, have a drink or two and then drive home, but never ever have a drink and then drive on base because you have to physically interact with the person at the gate and it's just not worth it because they smell any alcohol on you. You're getting kicked out of the military. It's just automatic thing. So I thought something, I thought so too. Open a check case. You go to, you know, you check the logs. Those descriptions are pretty accurate and not a typical person, I think, would you know, going in and out of base. But I did a little research, and I found out that Fort Bragg was an open post, so there was actually no security gate or checkpoint to stop anyone from entering or roaming around as they pleased. What? This is the 1970s. I have... I... Um, 2000s Jamie is shaken to her core right now, because literally I tried to take a friend on base to go to the gym the other day. I had to sign him in to in... He had to, like, give him his driver's license, get pictures taken of him, and he had to sign an agreement that I would be with him at all times. Well, Jamie, you have to remember, this is, well, we live in a post-9-11 world. Everything's different. It took an hour. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah, well, apparently it was not like that. So the news reports of the killing was the top story in Fayetteville. The headline screamed, Officer's wife, children, found slain, and murder victims of a ritualistic hippie cult. Is this post-Manson family? So this is actually. See, the Manson murders were actually just six months earlier, and everybody in the community was on edge. But investigators, however, had some doubts just like you about the story. 
Police thought the invaders would have attacked McDonald's, the biggest threat, before attacking his wife and children. Okay, so I know investigators say that, but I don't really necessarily think that's an issue because if you remember earlier, I said that that side room led right into the main bedroom. So you would attack the person there first, and McDonald's had said he was sleeping on the couch. Well, yeah, you attack the first person you see. You don't walk past someone just to find the biggest person in the house. That's kind of stupid. Yeah, so what I read about, well, you know, I read during the police reports and investigations, that was like one of the big things for them. That didn't really seem like a reason to me, but. Well, and especially if you're on drugs, think about it. If you're high off acid, are you going to have the forethought to be like, there must be a husband in this house somewhere? Yeah, exactly. And. But investigators also noted that McDonald's injuries compared to those of Colette, Kimberly, and Christom's were far less severe. Oh, it sounded like it. See, I'm sitting there and my mind's toiling. I'm like, okay, with injuries like that, it sounds like it's at least someone who knew her that was angry at her. But it could also just be a stranger who was angry at her lifestyle, I guess. But it's it's a personal thing. Like, that's a personal attack. That's not someone who wants the things in your home. You know what I mean? Yeah. And the crime scene photos and the autopsy photos of Colette and the children were absolutely gruesome. So the autopsy reports concluded that Colette was stabbed 16 times with a knife and 21 times with an ice pick. And then she was hit in the head with a club at least six times. Both of her arms are broken, which is really common with trying to defend yourself. Little Kimberly was hit twice in the head and stabbed with a knife eight to 10 times in the neck while Kristen was stabbed 17 times with a knife and had a total of 15 puncture rooms on her chest. Her hands were cut in what should appear to be offensive wounds. And when it comes to McDonald's, there's, I had a really hard time corroborating just how extensive his actual wounds were. Um, accounts differ to the overall severity of McDonald's injuries, but there is no question they were light in comparison to what his children had suffered. Oh, yeah, because when you described them earlier, you only described, like, two major wounds. Yeah, his most serious wound was an ice pick stabbed to the chest that had partially deflated his lung. Yeah, which, um, that's serious. That's very serious. Yeah. People can die from that. Fatal Justice, which is a book about the murder, says that McDonald had at least three bruises on his head, a bruise on his shoulder, an upper left arm, and a bruise on his left forearm that would be, you know, pretty common with defensive wounds. Okay, so he was definitely in a fight. In addition to the stabbing that punctured McDonald's lungs, Fatal Justice lists a knife that would list a knife that went through McDonald's bicep, punctured wounds to his arms, two cuts to his hand, four or five ice pick wounds to his chest, two knife wounds to his abdomen, and several ice pick wounds to his abdomen as well. But I couldn't find it in the police records, so I had like I have a hard time saying that like oh all these wounds were accurate because mostly they just talk about the lung. Okay, guys, once again, I'm going to go into my own experience here. When police write records, they tend to overlook smaller cuts, or they'll just all lump them in together and be like, cuts to the forearm, cuts to the side, cuts to the, and then be like, in deflated lung, large large incision here, etc. So it's a bunch of small cuts. Unfortunately, our police are really, really busy and understaffed and underpaid a lot of the time. So they don't have time to categorize every small little cut, if that makes sense. Yeah, that does make sense. If those were categorized, if they were there, then that changes everything, doesn't it? Well, yeah, it changes from he only had two injuries to he had injuries throughout his entire body. Which, 
Okay, also, once again, own experience here. Sorry, guys. Military police, depending on the training, there's different types. There are specifically MPs, which is just kind of the more run-of-the-mill police officers, which would be like, um, like a street cop. So they don't handle that kind of stuff very often. So maybe they didn't have the training or couldn't remember their training or didn't have like, or they just didn't have the experience to know exactly how to do that. And I'm not sure if the army has this, but my husband's in the air force and we have something called OSI and that's who we would have cover a homicide. And they are trained to collect evidence in the field and to handle more serious cases where MPs are mostly there to keep people from running onto the base, keep people from where they're supposed to be, you know, doing what they're supposed to be doing, you know, speeding tickets, that kind of stuff. And yeah, and I, and in their police reports, I did see a whole bunch of things about military police, military police. I didn't necessarily see anything about OSI, not saying that they weren't there, just saying I didn't have any, I couldn't find any records of it. I I believe the OSI is just for the Air Force, and I'm not quite sure if the Army has their own version of the OSI, or if they just have their MPs do all of that. Oh, okay. Well, okay, so, while the community had fretted about these murderous hippies, the investigators saw anomalies in the living room, too, where McDonald said he fought off four people. How big is this guy who's fighting off four people? Fairly large guy. Um, I would say above average. But even an above average man, four people? Well, three guys. Maybe the girl wasn't really active in it, but still three guys. That's a lot. I'm thinking acid is probably one of the drugs that hypes you up more than drowses you out. You know what I mean? Yeah. And if they're screaming, you know, love acid and kill pigs. I would assume they were on acid if they're screaming about acid. Oh, yeah. I'm totally making the assumption that they're on the drugs they're screaming about. But I don't know, like a lot for one guy to handle by himself, especially if he's is he like special forces paratrooper? Like, what is his career? I'm going to get into that. Um, so, well, McDonald did say he fought off the four people. Um, Joe McGinnessy's in the 1983's Fatal Vision said, when one considers that it was in an area in which a life-and-death struggle had taken place between a Green Beret officer and four intruders who had obviously been in some sort of a murderous frenzy, and at least some of whom had been armed, there seemed remarkably few signs of a disorder. Um, this book, by the way, is the first book that was published about McDonald's case, and McGinnis obviously portrayed McDonald's as guilty. But I did a little research, and... McDonald's was a physician for the Green Bray unit of Fort Bragg, but he wasn't a Green Bray himself. He took care of the health of the Special Force soldiers, and he, but he was not a Special Force soldier himself. For anybody that doesn't know like the difference between a run-of-the-mill soldier and a Special Force soldier, they receive intense training in combat and survival skills, and in how to work with insurgencies in foreign countries. McDonald's didn't receive any of this training. But after reviewing all the evidence surrounding the case, the investigators concluded that McDonald's killed his family and then intentionally injured himself and staged the living room to support his claim of a home invasion. The army charged McDonald's with homicide of his wife and daughters on May 1st, 1970. During the trial, however, the court turned some light into maybe the case had not been handled as properly as it should have. An ambulance driver had actually stolen McDonald's wallet from his home and had set the fallen flower pot upright. 
This upright flower pot had added to the impression that McDonald had staged the crime scene. Examiners had also failed to collect fingerprints from the children's bodies. Some of the fingerprints from the crime scene were accidentally destroyed, and some of the bloody footprints as well were destroyed. A piece of skin was found under Colette's fingernails, possibly from her attacker, that had disappeared when it was being collected, Jamie. Then, the military police and the investigators had actually picked up and read a blood-smeared copy of the Esquire magazine in the living room. And it was covered with their fingerprints. And then, looking at some of the autopsy photos, investigators had found out that the military police had first arrived. One of Colette's breasts was actually exposed. But the crime scene photos showed her upper body had been covered with the towel, which all of us crime lovers would know means that somebody tampered with the crime scene. Who put the towel on her? Well, if they're in an investigation, I would assume it would either be the military police or one of the investigators. Or they let the husband put it on her. Which Possibly. Which would, by the way, be a gross mishandling of the situation. So you want the body to be uncontaminated as possible. So that way when you take swabs and you look for DNA well, this is all before DNA. You don't have to worry about the contamination. I know, but even back then, they could do blood typing. Yeah. One of the military police also testified that while he was en route to the castle drive, he saw a woman standing at the intersection about a half a mile away. She was wearing a dark raincoat, a wide-brimmed hat. He thought it was really unusual that a woman would be out in the rain shortly before 4 a.m. And later on in the court hearings, it was revealed it was revealed that in February that in February, 17-year-old Helena Stockley of Fayetteville, a drug-using police informant in the local hippie, in the local hippie community, had made comments about the McDonald's case to Fayetteville police officers that she had worked with. Her statements were super vague, but they had potentially implemented her as being present during the murders. Stockley, by the way, was known to have worn a blonde wig, boots, and a large floppy hat. It's interesting to me that one of the EMTs had said that he saw a girl about half a mile away with a large brimmed hat at 4 a.m. And this girl was known to walk around with a wide brimmed hat. Is Stockley the woman who the uh, military police saw standing in the rain a few blocks from McDonald's house while they were en route to the crime scene? Which, by the way, if you see a creepy lady standing in the rain, maybe stop and see what's up. Like, it's it's... Guys, I have so much respect for the police, but oh my gosh, at least, like, it's your job. It's literally their job to see, to make sure everyone on base is doing what they're supposed to be and where they're supposed to be. And this lady is standing on base by herself in the rain, and you don't stop and ask her if she needs a ride somewhere? Protect and serve. This is the service portion of your job. It just, well, that, and it's like you're on the way to a crime scene. Like, a suspicious character near the crime scene would be somebody I would want to talk to. Yeah, like, hey, did you see any cars driving past here since you've been out in the rain, clearly soaked and dripping constantly? You're dripping wet, lady. Did you see anything? You've been out here for a while. Do you need any NyQuil because you look like you're about to catch a cold? Like, Jesus, man. (laughs) Well, yeah, and with all these inconsistencies, in October of 1970, the Army actually dropped all charges against McDonald. Well, like I was saying, I, just from how it was handled... I'm just going to say it was just the general military police that handle it and not like a specialty force that was trained to handle homicides. 
just like from the way it was handled, it doesn't sound like it was the people that were trained specifically for this. Just like the general people that that's not really their job description. And they probably had some training, but clearly not enough. The investigating officer in the Article 32 hearing, Cole Warren versus Rock, said civilian authorities could still investigate Stockley. Could still investigate Stockley. McDonald's had left the military in December 1970, and in 1971, he had moved to California to restart his life and his medical career. By June in 1979, McGinnis had wrote the book, Fatal Vision. He was the, McDonald's was the director of emergency medicine at a hospital. His condo had parking out front for his sports car and was on the water in the back accommodating his 34-foot yacht. McDonald's would be moving into a prison cell less than three months later. In early 1971, Helena Stockley was again giving police contradictory statements. Sometimes she said she thought she was there, sometimes she said she couldn't remember the night. She also said she had nightmares. And in April of 1971, she took a polygraph test. An examiner concluded that Stockley believed she had been present during the murders, and she knew who killed Colette McDonald and the children. However, the examiner did say that he couldn't be conclusive because Stockley's statements and her state of mind was basically shot doing excessive drug use. An investigator did take a hair sample from Stockley and her fingerprints. These did not match any that were found on the crime scene. McDonald's, however, did remain a suspect during the investigation. Finally, in August of 1974, a federal grand jury convened to evaluate the case. Jeffrey McDonald's was among the people interviewed before it. The jury indicted him in January of 1975. The trial ran from July 19th to August 29th of 1979. In Fatal Vision, some jurors told McGinnis that they were unpersuaded by the prosecutioner's case until they listened to a recording of a law enforcement interview with McDonald's. This jury was quoted by saying, He just didn't sound like a man telling the truth. That was one of many pieces of evidence against McDonald, though. I feel like someone just not sounding the way you expect them to isn't evidence, though. Yeah, I, well, I completely agree. But when you look at the other stuff, it's... It's, it, you know, it starts to build a case against McDonald. One, it had appeared that someone had been wearing surgical gloves when they wrote pig in blood on the headboard. An analysis from the FBI gave extensive testimonies about the blood patterns, holes, rips in the bedding, and McDonald's pajamas themselves. The analysis had concluded that someone had actually stabbed Colette in the chest with an ice pick through McDonald's pajamas top. In this air before DNA evidence, investigators used the different blood types of the McDonald's and their children and where their blood was found throughout the apartment to convince the juror that McDonald's had moved from room to room committing these killings. Over the objections of McDonald's lawyers, the prosecutor had articles from the Esquire magazine about the Manson murder case in California read to the juror. This was the issue found with blood smeared on top of McDonald's living room the one that had been mishandled by the investigators and the military police that they had actually read the article. The prosecutors pointed out similarities between the Manson case as described in the magazine and the McDonald's murders. For example, one of the killers had written pig on the door in the blood of Sharon Tate. The jurors deliberated for less than a day. It was found McDonald's guilty of second-degree murder in the death of Colette and Kimberly 
and the first murder in the death of Kristen. McDonald's then appealed his conviction. He had a recite in 1980 when the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled that his right to a speedy trial had been violated, and he was released from prison in August. But then the Supreme Court reversed that ruling in March of 1982, and McDonald's went back behind bars. Helena Stockley died in 1983, so she couldn't stand trial. And when DNA testing had emerged as a new forensic tool, McDonald's had sought testing of the evidence to prove someone else had killed his family. In 2006, a strand of hair from under two-year-old Kristen's fingernails couldn't be matched to anybody. However, it wasn't until 2012, six years later, Jamie, that McDonald's had finally got a new hearing. Uh, the justice system is so funny. I agree. Well, it's like it's interesting to me that his conviction got overturned because he didn't get his right to a speedy trial, and then they found evidence, and then they put him back in jail, and there was evidence that proved that he, somebody else was there, and they don't go to trial for six years later? Prisoner officials had brought him to the federal courthouse in Wilmington to be present while his lawyers made his case to the U.S. District Judge, James C. Fox. They said McDonald's deserved a new trial for several reasons, including a deceased U.S. Marshal who was reported to have said he drove Helena Stockley from South Carolina to McDonald's trial in 1979, and she had admitted to him to being in McDonald's home during the murders. However, the marshal allegedly said Stockley was coerced by a prosecutor to keep that to herself because she could be charged for murder. Then, with the DNA testing, there was actually three hairs found in total in the crime scene that didn't match anybody. Which would basically mean that McDonald's was right, that there was, th- you know, four people, they found three DNA samples of unknown substances in the house. It would you know, prove his case. The prosecutors countered that one of the hairs, the one that was found in Kristen's fingernails, may have been an incident of the crime scene contamination, and the other two could have been in the home long before the homicides. They had also said the dead marshal's claims couldn't be trusted because of the travel records and testimonies from other marshals showed he had gotten his facts wrong about the trip. The marshal had died in 2008. So Fox ruled against McDonald's in 2014. McDonald's had appealed but lost at the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals in 2018, and the Supreme Court denied this past October to take up his case. For the moment, McDonald's has no more pending court actions. His lawyer, Hart Miles, had represented McDonald's in his most recent effort to prove he was wrongly convicted. Jeff has not given up and has continued to explore avenues to get back in court but I don't know when anything might be filed. Well, he's probably pretty far down the court, you know, the line pipe. And at some point, like, the Supreme Court only takes so many cases. But for now, McDonald's next chance for freedom is parole. He first became eligible in 1991, but he didn't have a parole hearing until May of 2005. And um, the U.S. Department of Justice had said that parole was denied and the U.S. Parole Commission said McDonald's must wait 15 years for reconsideration. 15 years? This next opportunity is this May, Jamie. Well, I guess I'm going to go put that in my calendar and check in on it when it happens. Yeah, it's just, this case is crazy to me. During my research, I found myself going back and forth about whether he was guilty or whether he wasn't. But with all the com- with all the contamination of the case, it's just, to me, it's like, this evidence was handled so badly. I mean, how can you keep a man behind bars for this? Exactly. So guys, I believe in our justice system. I really do. And I believe that if the police make a mistake, 
then it should not be on the person that is being tried to have to shoulder that burden. So what I'm saying is he may be guilty, and honestly, I think he is, but the police messed this case up, and he shouldn't be in jail because of it. They did a poor job convicting him. In our country, unlike others, it's innocent until proven guilty. And because of how contaminated the case was, I don't think they did that in this case. It just doesn't seem like justice was served here. I, you know, it's hard because everything was mismanaged. So it's, it's so hard to be like, oh yeah, he did it. Or, oh yeah, he didn't. And I can't imagine that it's gone on this long. Well, if they would have done their jobs, he wouldn't be this mysterious case. We probably wouldn't even been talking about him because they probably would have found him guilty. Because honestly... The way he describes it going down and how it happened, to me, doesn't make sense. I think he's full of it. But you can't handle a case that badly and not expect something like this to happen. I would love... So you guys, I don't know if we've talked about this before, but I would love to go into some sort of law enforcement. And I want to go into law enforcement for things specifically like this. I want to handle cases correctly so that way when people are guilty, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Because I feel like there are some truly bad, evil people in this world. And unfortunately, police work is a lot of the times why they go free. Yeah, I agree. And they're bad, awful, horrible people in this world. The question still stands. Is McDonald's one of them? And without all the facts and without... Being in that room, I don't think anybody's going to actually be able to say with all certainty, certainty because of how this case was handled, whether or not he's one of them. Nicole, I couldn't say it better myself. And on that note, guys, we're done for the week. I hope you really enjoyed this case because it is a nail biter, head scratcher, hair puller outer. Oh my gosh, it totally is. And there's so many, you know, in all the books that I stated, there's, you know, the one I stated earlier where he's basically saying that this was a botched crime scene investigation from the get-go versus the other one where I'm saying this guy's completely guilty. I recommend reading both. Nicole, I think it's an excellent idea because there's always two sides to the story and then there's the truth. Production by Jamie. Production and editing by Nicole. Our intro music is Wrong by Dan Hennig. Our background music is In Albany, New York by the 129ers.